is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The San Bernardino National Forest closed to visitors. Crews working hard to clear the snow. Well, the biggest threat to a Donald Trump 2024 presidential run is here in Southern California this weekend. Also, Katherine Schwarzenegger-Pratt will join us later. She's out with a new book your kids might want to read. But we start with the San Bernardino National Forest closure and a warning for visitors to stay away from the local communities. Back with us is Big Bear Lake Council member Rick Herrick. Rick, thanks for being with us. So the latest is what? If somebody wants to go to Big Bear or another place up there, stay away for a couple of weeks, is that it? That is the basic message to have. And the the Forest Service is now jumping in with Caltrans, uh, CHP, and uh, warning people to please stay away. The forest has been closed previously for uh, fires, uh, as well as it was closed for a period of time during COVID. Uh, but in this particular case, what can happen, we're trying to avoid a tragedy as somebody trying to find another way to get into Big Bear uh, to uh, either get to their home here or possibly to get to a second home or possibly just to go up to the slopes and go skiing and get stuck in one of the back roads where they can't get out and they maybe don't have cell service and they get stuck back in there. So trying to trying to alleviate that, it's not uncommon to have the forest closed. But in this particular case, this is very different because it is now it's a national disaster as opposed to just being a road event, as uh, as we have previously described it. Yeah, you know, we had uh, several days uh, pre-warning for this. Uh, blizzard warnings were up. I think we were talking about blizzard warnings about three days before it actually hit. And I think even then, some people were saying in the uh, in the lead up to that, like, hey, if you've got plans to visit mountains this weekend, don't uh, just hold off for a while. Uh, but then that runs the danger of we get a blizzard warning and it comes in and it's not as bad as we thought it was. In this case, it was a little bit more than we thought it was going to be. But uh, how bad would that be for the community, for tourism and for uh, income uh it is actually it's not good at all uh as we've said uh, too much of a good thing is a bad thing and and right now our economy really does depend on tourism does depend on people coming up here and enjoying the snow and enjoying the slopes and uh, just to give an example maybe a day like today there might be six thousand people up on the slopes uh the last word i got was there was 600 and um that is basically i'll call them the locals who are up uh, enjoying because nobody else is up there but it's not only just that the ski areas, by the way, ski areas are open, even though the forest is closed, they have a special permit. So they, they have an exemption. They don't have to close, but it's, it's all the, the ski rental companies. It's the restaurants, it's the gas stations. It goes on and on and on. Our, our economy really depends on money flowing in. And right now it has stopped. Uh, fingers crossing, get the roads open, everything cleaned up. Our, our town is actually in much better shape than other places in the San Bernardino mountain range. For instance, Lake Arrowhead Crestline really were hit hard. Fortunately, this is something that we're used to. We're, we're a very resilient community, used to storms, and uh, used to actually trying to clean it up as quick, quickly as possible. So uh, we're not in as bad shape, but uh, we really only have one route in right now, and that is uh, 18. And then we call it the back grade from Lucerne up. And that particular route, we just cannot afford to have closed in any way. And so because of that, they're restricting traffic on it, which does make sense. Just trying to get fuel and food up to the uh, residents who are here in Big Bear. I, I want to just clarify something because you're saying that the the ski slopes are are open. Is that just for residents, or how would other people get there? Well, they can't get there, um, and uh, it is for residents. Some people were trapped up here. Some people oh, okay. can't uh, weren't weren't 
uh, leaving and as well as there are other people who have second homes here who uh, can work remotely. So they are here as well. So there, there's a population that is definitely here. But for the average person who, for instance, wanted to rent a house, buy some uh, tickets, rent equipment, that, that is just not possible for them to, to make it here. And it's just not advisable for them to come here at this point either. All right. Thank you so much. That's a Big Bear Lake Council member Rick Herrick. Right now, though, even though the San Bernardino National Forest is closed, as we've told you, ski resorts are still open and people are actually there right now. Justin Kenton is with the Big Bear Mountain Resort. Justin, thanks for being with us. And to be really clear about this, and we we wanted to be clear about it in our last segment as well, we are not now talking right about people who decide this weekend they want to come up and go skiing because they can't get there. These are what, local residents or people who were trapped up there and have decided to go skiing? Yeah, that's correct. So just to reiterate, all routes up and down the, the mountain, which includes state routes, 1838 and 330 are currently closed to public travel. Um, so don't don't make any plans to come up here this weekend. They won't They won't let you up the hill. They'll turn you around and you'll... You'll be disappointed um, in that respect. But yeah, we we are still operating um, Bear Mountain and Snow Summit at the moment. We do have a, a very limited amount of, of guests that are either local residents or people who are, were up here before the, the major snowstorms came in um, who are able to, to come to the resorts and, and get on the lifts and, and enjoy some laps today. Uh, what percentage of uh, guests do you have right now compared to like when, when everything's open and people are able to get there? Oh man, yeah, it's 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 a fraction. Uh, you know, there's maybe a third of our of our parking lots are full right now. It's it's very minimal. And again, these are all people that that live here and or were were already up here by the time road closures were announced. So, just to remind people, it's it's important that you don't book any travel or plan any any trips to the mountains for the future foreseeable future. Um, the National Forest is closed through March 16th, and that's in order to allow road crews and other agencies to get out and physically remove all the snow that we've received. Um, it's it's stacking up and, and it's getting to a point where we need to find more areas to, to move the snow around and, and get those roads cleared for folks to get uh, supplies up and down the mountain. I'm curious, Justin, are any of the, the folks there who are now skiing because they got, I guess, trapped there right before the storm hit, are any of them, as much as I'm sure they enjoy skiing, just getting really anxious to leave? I'm sure there's probably a certain percentage of people who who came up before the snow started to fall and, and are looking to get off the hill. In fact, there are opportunities for people to download the hill um, off Highway 18 through Lucerne, but that's strictly for people who are, who are either leaving to return to their primary residence or for full-time residents of the Big Bear Valley. They are allowed to come back up the hill, but they have to have proof of residency. Um, that does not include second homeowners. That does not include people that have um, vacation rentals booked, anything of that nature, that's that's not enough to get you a passage up the hill. You have to be a full-time local resident. So uh, given how long it might take before things can get back to normal, I don't, I don't know how long you expect that to take. And also, uh, if it does take a while, how big of a hit to your business are you going to take? Yeah, it certainly uh, does impact uh, our business as well as many of the other local communities and, and businesses that rely on on tourists and visitation to to support their staff and um, and their businesses. So we will certainly take a hit here um, in the in the short term, but it's definitely uh, the the small potatoes compared to you know what other communities the the Crestline area and 
Lake Arrowhead, what they're dealing with in terms of getting snow removed and roads cleared and those sort of things, uh, we'll be we'll be fine. We're we're working with in conjunction with local agencies to to stay on top of things. But the primary issue is really just the the health, safety, and um, restocking of supplies. You know, for the local community. I would imagine that once there's a, a, the ability to get back to Big Bear and the and you know the forest is back open again in a couple of weeks, I would imagine you're going to be like turning people away because there's all that pent-up demand sure yeah absolutely we do expect visitation to to jump right back up if and when roads do get cleared and and people are able to to travel safely up and down the the roads but uh, in the meantime you know our, our primary focus is just making sure that our staff our employees um, the local community is is safe and, and being taken care of and, and that we're getting as much snow uh, moved around and removed as possible to make sure that we can get stores restocked, gas stations refueled, um, and, and make sure that there's safe passes for everyone that's up here. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Justin Canton with uh, Big Bear Mountain Resort. And in just a few minutes, we are going to be talking with Catherine Schwarzenegger-Pratt. That's the daughter, as I mentioned, of Maria Shriver and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she's got a children's book out, and it's a book with a pretty heartwarming message. So stick around for that. And right now, though, the uh, trial on the Alec Murdoch murder case uh, was only about 28 days long. And then when the jury finally got the uh, case, it only took them three hours to come back with full convictions uh, uh, on every count. And then a judge today sentenced him to life in prison without parole. Dr. Nina Ross is a psychiatry professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So one thing that was interesting as uh, we watched the uh, jury come back with a guilty plea, he seemed to have no reaction at all, which was quite different from when he was on the stand talking about what happened. This time it seemed like he almost was kind of bored and not really there. What do you make of that? Um, well, you know, it's hard to know um, what to make in this particular case because I, I haven't, you know, interacted with him in any way. Um, I, I would say there's probably, you know, a variety of interpretations, um, but it's hard to say for sure without actually, you know, being his psychiatrist and seeing him. Well, let me let me ask you this, because here's what I think many people certainly I find really interesting about this. And that is that I think people do have preconceived notions of the kinds of people who kill people, whether it's strangers or they kill their family members. And yet here's a guy who, for all intents and purposes, seemed, if there's such a thing as being beyond normal, he was that. I mean, he came from a very powerful and wealthy local family. Uh, he had a, a, a respected position in society. He was an attorney. He had a really nice family. And yet he was swindling from his law firm, stealing from his own clients, and now uh, is convicted of killing his wife and kid to help cover up his financial crimes. That, I think, has people pondering, how do you ever know what someone is truly like? Yeah, that that is a great question um, I, that I wish we had better answers to in uh, in the field. Um, unfortunately, it's a it's a really well. Fortunately, it is hard to study because um, people who kill other people it's a relatively rare thing, um, especially people who kill their families, um, as was the case here. Um, but you know, people who kill other people and pe- even people who kill their families, um, 
they're a pretty difficult group to study and they don't really, we don't know a lot about the characteristics that they have in common. Um, different studies have shown that um, sometimes there may be different motivations. Um, like some people who kill their families are do it for what we call, what we call them accusatory killers, um, people who have grievances against their family members. Other people who kill their families um, are what's known as like despondent killers, so people who are more depressed and kill their families um, in kind of an altruistic way. Um, so even in this like really small group of people who kill their families, we see two very different types of people. So it's it's really, really hard to, well, we can't, we can't predict with any accuracy, um, like who might go on to uh, kill a family member or kill someone else. Um, uh, yeah. A few a few years ago, there was a there, there was a movement started to uh, send some uh, psychiatric uh, experts to begin talking to people who were convicted and who eventually confessed of carrying out serial murders. And the idea was to try to understand their thinking so that it would help in finding serial killers in the future, as uh, you know, profilers would learn to figure out what drives them. So, uh, would it help? your profession if maybe a similar investigation was done into people like Alec Murdoch, who seemingly killed her family to cover up other crimes? What what justification would drive people to do that so that maybe you could uh, predict that kind of behavior in the future? Would, would there be any help to your profession in doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can only learn about these things if we study them. And um, certainly, the more we study them, the more we might find some meaningful conclusions. Um, it, there, are, there are a few studies out there, um, but again, they're just, they're small numbers, fortunately. So it, it is hard at this point, just because of the limited data to, um, to come up with meaningful information, but more data could definitely be helpful. All right. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Anita Ross, a psychiatry professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is uh, trying as hard as he can, it appears, to appeal to the Trump base in what many are assuming is going to be a run for president next year. Now, those questions are going to circle faster and faster as DeSantis will be here in Southern California this weekend. So with us to explain the need for this cross-country visit is Republican strategist Sean Walls. Sean, thanks for being with us. Greetings, gentlemen. So uh, he often, uh, DeSantis, that is, uh, expressed antipathy in one way or another toward California, certainly toward, I guess, uh, Gavin Newsom, our governor. So why the uh, trip out west? Well, in a way, this is a bit of a coming out uh, party or coming out show for Governor DeSantis. Uh, If he is going to run and if he is going to win, he's going to have to attract a whole host of Republicans and conservative Democrats. And coming to California and doing the types of events he's doing, particularly at the Reagan Library, where the Republicans still revere uh, Ronald Reagan, his big speech is a good chance for him to say, I can be Trump-like in my cultural, you know, kind of war on wokeness, but I also run a state. I can get things done. You're not going to have to worry about crazy treats tweets coming out every morning. The fights you're going to see are fights in Congress over things that matter to conservatives, budgets and defense spending, etc. But, you know, you say that uh, he's going to try to appeal to conservative Democrats. But so far, as I've been able to see, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but, you know, I watch, he appe- he appears to be trying to appeal to the people who think Trump isn't Trump enough. Uh, 
Uh, in Florida, we saw him go after a uh, a business in uh, an attempt to punish them, to use the power of the state government to punish them for expressing an opinion that, that went against a law that that he had backed. And then you see what he's been doing with some uh, some liberal colleges trying to take over them with some of his uh, friends, uh, taking over the Orlando area where Walt Disney World is located and putting some people, uh, his friends, on a, on a board to kind of control that. And then just the other day, one of his uh, supporters in the uh, Florida legislature introduced a bill that would call on any blogger who writes about him or anyone in his cabinet to have to register with the state, which would be a blatantly uh, big constitution. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how how is he going to do all that while trying to appeal to conservative Democrats or, or people who might be middle of the road Republicans who think that, you know, we're tired of Trump. We want somebody different. Well, so that's a, that's a whole chest full of things you've just put out there. So let me just lay it out. So, number one, he has to that's a general election. Number one, he has to appeal to. Republicans. And as the Nixon axiom, axiom, you run to the right in a primary, you run back to the center in a general election. I think what he's going to try and do is go after the kind of wokeness. He's going to go after the crime. He's going to say, Lori Lightfoot, the people stood up, even liberal Democrats in Chicago and threw her out. And I'm a guy, again, who can get things done. I run a state. So yes, uh, the new college issue was something he raised, but he's playing the woke game. He's playing to the conservative base. He's trying to say, you know what? You don't need Donald Trump and all the things that he did. I'm Ron DeSantis. I can be your mantle for that element of the conservative movement Republicans. At the same time, he also has to pivot and attract to people you know, I'm a Reagan. I'm a Reagan staffer. I'm a Bush staffer. I'm a Wilson staffer. I'm a Schwarzenegger staffer. He's got to appeal to Republicans like me who are more mainstream to get enough votes to be uh, the nominee. So let's see if he can pull it off in Florida. And that's a big test of Florida. If he can pull it off at the Reagan library in his speech, that's a big test for him. If he goes all hardcore, if he goes attacks Disney, if he attacks New College, if he attacks all wokeness and doesn't give anything else like that, then I think he fails the test. He's here also because this is a good place to come for money, isn't it? Well, it's a good cl- place for everybody to come to money. I mean, the the old axiom that California is the ATM of Cal- of American politics is absolutely right. So he's uh, in Orange County. He's got a couple of fundraisers down here, which ironically is kind of the home base where um, Mike Pompeo, who may be a presidential candidate as well, grew up. So, uh, yeah, but get here early and raise as much money as you can. That's the axiom for Republicans and Democrats who are starting their presidential campaigns. You know, some watchers say that uh, DeSantis is able to be Trump-like without being Trump, and, and I think you raised that issue as well, uh, that, that he can be Trump without all the extra problems that Trump brings along with him. But others have noted that, uh, for better or worse, Trump puts on a better show. He's got more charisma. He's a, he's, he's a better showman, whereas DeSantis seems to have trouble in that regard. Uh, what's your assessment of that? Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, I think people get tired of having hour and a half long, almost Fidel Castro like speeches that President Trump did. And his one liners and defining people as, you know, Sleepy Joe or Low Energy Jeb. I mean, that was interesting then, but he, he's senior in his age, too. He's old, not unlike Joe Biden. Is. He's certainly got his faculties better, I think, Trump than, than Joe Biden. But I think DeSantis can draw a nice contrast that on the policy issues and the social issues you care about, I'm going to be your guy, but I'm not going to cause all that heartburn and all that trouble and 
groaning and waking up like, what did the guy do today? So I think he has an alley and he's got a big alley. He's got one of the biggest alleys in the Republican Party so far. Haley's got Nikki Haley can be very, very attractive. Tim Scott can be very attractive. Pompeo, we got a deep bench. But I have to tell you, the spotlight is on DeSantis now and stepping off the curb and really going out to campaign and doing it in California is kind of a bold move. So let's hope his speechwriters and his consultants have their act together because he could really, really do himself some favors if he hits this Reagan library speech. Or I think he can really put himself into a ditch for a while right, let me, let uh, me, if he doesn't hit it. Yeah. Let me very quickly put you on the spot. So 2024, Biden versus Trump, Biden versus somebody other than Trump, or somebody versus somebody? Well, it's obviously going to be somebody versus somebody. <laughs> we know that for certain. Um, you know, I think from everything I'm hearing from the political folks that I talked to and the media I talked to back in Washington, Biden has his heart in it. And even more significantly, Mrs. Biden has her heart in running the race. Uh, so I think it's going to be Biden. And I just think almost any Republican that we put up so far is pretty young and pretty vigorous. Uh, and you contrast that uh, to um, President Biden, I think at a minimum, uh, that's an attractive contrast, but we've got to put forward something that we can actually get things done. We're not going to shut the government down. We're not going to blow up a debt ceiling thing that puts our country into a bad economic position. So we've got to cut spending. We've got to cut the deficit, but we've got to do it in a way that we demonstrate to the American people that we can get things done. We're just not the party of no. Right. And I think our candidates can do that. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Republican strategist Sean Walsh. Catherine Schwarzenegger Pratt may be the daughter of celebrities, but uh, she's made quite the name for herself over the past decade. She's the author of self-help books and is a very strong supporter of animal rights. She's also a uh, children's book author, and i got to admit, I'm, I'm afraid to read children's books sometimes. Why? Because I think I'm going to read a children's book and I'm not going to understand it. And what's that <laughs> going to say about me? Uh, anyway, the first of her uh, books focused on the rescue and adoption of her dog, Maverick. Her uh, new book is titled Good Night, Sister. Catherine Schwarzenegger Pratt is with us live now. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So first of all, tell us about this new, uh, this new book, Good Night, Sister. What's it about? It is a book celebrating sisterhood. I wrote it based off the relationship I have with my sister, Christina, who is 19 months younger than me, but um, I always, growing up, made her do everything first. And so this book is really just to celebrate the relationship between sisters and also to uh, pay tribute to the dynamic between her and I growing up. And even if you don't have a sister, just celebrating the bond that you can have with a brother or a friend or a parent or a cousin to just be able to have somebody in your life that you can turn to in a time of need and to help you get through something scary. Was there a particular incident in, in your own life growing up that made you have the urge to write this particular book? No, I think it was actually really becoming apparent um, to me when I first had my daughter, Lila, my oldest daughter. I really just was spending so much time sitting in a rocking chair with her and reflecting on my own childhood and you know, uh, thinking about a lot of the memories that involved my sister because we did everything together growing up. So I really just, I wanted to honor that relationship and also those memories and that bond that we shared growing up and that we are still lucky enough to have today as adults. So it was really, you know, becoming a mom for the first time that, uh, you know, made me want to write this book. Is uh, part of that bond come from uh, growing up in a famous family and being surrounded by other 
celebrities. And and uh, Charles and I were talking about, you know, sometimes it's difficult uh, to be a child in a family like that because if for a long time, unless you make your own mark, you're on their stage no matter what you do. Is part of that bond with your sister has to do with that? No, I mean, I think no matter, you know, if you grow up with well-known parents or not, it's it's really just the bond between siblings that, you know, we were really lucky enough to be able to have in our childhood and also just in life now in general is just the closeness that we have, you know, as with my sister and then also with my two brothers is such a huge blessing. And we were really taught that from a very early age, just the importance of family the importance of that relationship with your siblings. My mom is so close to her brothers and, you know, my whole family is really close. So we really saw our parents lead by example to be close to your family, to put your family first, to, you know, love them, you know, and also know that as you get older, that there is going to be effort and energy put into maintaining the closeness of your relationship and your bond. And I don't think that had anything to do with having well-known parents as much as much as it did just having parents who led by example for us kids. So, yeah, I'm curious, as you were writing the book or even as you Mm -hmm. were thinking about writing the book, did you have any discussions with your your sister? Did you know, did you kind of run it by her? And did she at any point say, gee, I wish you wouldn't, you know, say this or maybe you should say that or maybe you shouldn't, (laughs) you know, say something in a particular way? Well, actually, it's funny because I. I uh, I really started the idea of wanting to write this book. And I, I was, you know, postpartum with my first child. I was reflecting on all these memories from my own childhood and just so grateful to have had the childhood that I had and just, you know, thinking about the fact that I'm never going to be a kid again. And now I have my own kids. And it's it was such a crazy, you know, flood of different feelings about the whole thing. And I wanted to write this book. And I I kind of wrote, started writing the book and wrote the book with the idea like, oh, I'm going to finish this book and present it to my sister as this gift to kind of be like, hmm. I I love you so much. And I loved our relationship. And like, here's this book. But I was quickly reminded how long it takes to actually write a book, even though it's a children's book, people think, oh, that's so easy. It seems so simple. But, you know, it takes a huge amount of time. I worked on it for two years. And a lot of energy goes into the illustrations and the story and getting the story perfect and right. And so I, uh, I quickly realized that when she would call me and she'd be like, what are you working on? I kind of tried to play it really, uh, you know, I tried to play it cool and be like, oh, I'm just working on some things. And she'd be like, no, seriously, what are you working on? Like, why are you being weird about it? So I had to quickly uh, tell her like, oh, I'm writing a book that's celebrating the relationship that we had. And, you know, you'll see it when it's done. So I had to tell her sooner than I would have wanted to and present her with like the final product. But when I finally was able to give it to her, uh, she was really excited about it and loved the illustrations and all the little kind of tributes to her that I sprinkled throughout the book of, you know, the room decor and the way the girls look and just their names in the book and a bunch of different parts of the book were kind of nods to my room, Christina's room, and who we were when we were younger. Hmm. It's kind of an overarching theme, too, because uh, as we're looking at this book, it's a bond with your sister. Uh, your earlier books uh, focusing on the rescue and adoption of your dog, Maverick, that's a bond that uh, people have with their pets. So it seems to be a lot of what uh, what concerns you, what reaches you, and how you try to reach yes. other people is in the bonds that we have with the people and, and the animals that we love and how that can make us better people. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. I mean, all of the books that I've written, children's and adult books, are ones that come from 
just real life experiences and real life moments or, you know, challenges or celebrations of certain things. So they all have come from, you know, what I've experienced in my life. And, and I, I feel really blessed to be able to do that. And also I, you know, people will always say to me like, okay, so this book is out, like, what's your next book going to be about? And I always, I always tell people that like the, the books that I, you know, choose to write about or the subjects I choose to write about are really from life experiences and and life journeys. And especially the ones that are adult books, they're, you know, subjects that are chosen that I have struggled with, or that I feel like I have experienced that I feel need more information or need more focus on. So people don't feel so alone in their journeys. And I, I try to have that kind of through line with everything that I do is that the goal is always putting information that's good information, helpful information, and celebrating certain subjects with the hope that someone can pick up one of my books or look at one of my episodes of my my Instagram live series, BDA Baby, with and feel less alone in their journey or feel seen in their experience. So I was raised by by parents who, you know, instilled in us from the very beginning that your purpose on this earth is is to leave it better than you found it and also to always be of service to others. And I feel like that's, you know, why I choose to do the work in the areas that I choose to do it in is is really with, with that goal in mind. Catherine, let me ask you uh, one last question. We're going to run out of time. So uh, you mentioned a number of times illustrations. And of course, as a children's book, the illustrations are really important, right? So yes, tell us a little bit, tell us a little bit about how, that process works. How did how does somebody illustrate what you have in mind as a writer? Well, I think it's a really collaborative uh, experience for sure. And if you're lucky enough to be able to work with an illustrator who is willing to be collaborative with the author, then that's a huge gift. And Lucy Fleming did an incredible job with the illustrations in this book. And I told her that you know I have this book that's called Goodnight Sister, and I had a lot of notes throughout writing the book about what I had envisioned for the illustrations and, you know, the colors and different things. And she was really willing to work with me and go back and forth with edits and notes and, you know, tweaks and changes and things like that. But she's also incredibly talented on her own. So she was really amazing to work with and really, you know, went along with all of the little uh, nitpicky notes that I hmm. had to make the book be exactly the way I had envisioned it, and she did a great job. All right, thanks so much. It's uh, Catherine Schwarzenegger Pratt uh, with us on the show. That's it for today's edition of KDEX in depth. We'll be back Monday.